Hey, Chicago Fire and Major League Soccer fans, this is Nick with our latest episode of Feed the Fire, a Chicago Fire podcast. It's Monday evening, July 3rd, and I want to take a minute to wish everyone a happy Independence Day, happy 4th of July. Hope you all have a great and safe celebration that come Wednesday, you're still counting all 10 fingers, however you choose to celebrate with or without the high explosives and fireworks. Um, We'll be traveling to visit some family in Indiana. We stop in at my favorite fireworks shop, Johnny Rockets, just off of 294 and U.S. Route 41, Indianapolis Boulevard, stocking up with plenty of mortar shells. And if you do go to Johnny Rockets, ask for John, ask for Anna, and tell them that Nick sent you. Anyway, we're going to continue on with our coverage of the Chicago Fire and Major League Soccer in this episode, brought to you by Skira Icelandic Spring Water. We're going to recap the match against Orlando City. Here's some commentary from our featured guest, John Donovan. And then we're going to look around the league, check out some notable matches and results, but also take a bigger picture looking at the U.S. men's national team and giving you some Gold Cup updates. But before we get into all of that, one little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of a favor. I'm going to ask you as you sit down with your family for this holiday week, this holiday celebration. If you like the show, have them, have them listen in. Share the link. Share the show share the YouTube channel, and let's see if you can't continue to grow the conversation around the Chicago Fire, Major League Soccer, and the sport in the United States, especially on this Independence Day where we have international and domestic matches. So please do me a favor, spread the word about the Feed the Fire podcast, follow along on Spotify is the best way to support the show, drive up my ranking in that algorithm, as well as grow the conversation on the sport. Now, without further ado, we are looking at the Chicago Fire's 3-1 loss at Orlando City. And by the way, 3-1 is generous considering Chris Brady's six saves and cat-like reflexes. This could have been 5-6-1 or had Brady not kept his head in the game from the opening whistle to the final minute. His defense let him down yet again. Now, this, this loss ends the win streak, ends the point streak, for the Chicago Fire after winning away matches in Portland and Kansas City. And this 3-1 to loss was the result of two Facundo Torres goals. Almost had a third. Thank you, Chris Brady, again. Uh, and a Ramiro Enrique goal in the 75th. Jordan Shakiri gets one in the 66th from the spot to make it look respectable. I don't even know if you want to call it that, especially the way he played in this game. But let's break down the goals, look at some of the stats, and then you'll hear from our featured guest, John Donovan. So the first goal, it's Facundo Torres, the Uruguayan international, the star of Orlando City right now, opening things up in the 38th minute. Now play starts with Orlando City building up in the middle of the field, in the midfield. The ball is played into Ojeda, who's right around the 18-yard box, does a little fancy dribbling, gets Chihos to miss, and Chihos just drops his arms, looks up to the sky, and is like, I oh, can't believe that I just took a stab at that ball and let the sky dribble right around me. Then Ojeda is able to find Kyle Smith on the wing. Smith then lobs the ball to the center of the six-yard box, and Facundo Torres, all five foot nine of him, in no way should he be competing for headers against the Chicago Fire back line. But again, he's the only one in the area. The only one paying attention and not ball watching. He's actually making a run to space. 
uh, puts the header down. Brady does get a hand on it, but there's just too much pace. He can't deflect it out. goes into the net, and Orlando City take the lead. So a few things here on this play that are pretty pretty indicative of how the Fire have been playing defense for large parts of the season and why I don't think the current coaching staff is, is the right people to bring them out of this defensive malaise or this season-long, two-season-long, five-season malaise that they have been in here. So the fire drop deep, which allow Orlando City to build possession. Now we've seen Frank Lopas want to initiate higher lines of confrontation. We have seen Ezra Henriksen have Fetty Navarro and Gaston Jimenez try and, and clog up the midfield, but none of that happened here. And I, I think it was the result of one of two things. One, this was not the game plan. The game plan was let Orlando City pass the ball around because they're dangerous on the counterattack. I disagree with that. They should have put pressure on the ball. You should always be putting pressure on the ball, especially in that attacking midfield area of the other team. But secondly, I just think they're not disciplined and not focused and not locked in. They got away with two wins against Portland and Kansas City, as I've said in past episodes. And I think this is finally just a lack of concentration, a lack of focus, and maybe a lack of Klopas keeping the locker room, you know, under, I don't want to say under control, but just keeping the locker room, keeping them buying into his coaching. And uh, they just completely were out of position. You had Jimenez and Pineda just dropping to almost the 18-yard line to be about even with their defenders. So that allows Orlando City to bring the ball forward. Again, a problem all season. Allowing opposing players to take the space in central areas in front of goal, to drive at the goal, to not step up, just backpedaling or ball watching. And as you know, the odds of a team scoring a goal increase dramatically when they can pass the ball into and then out of and around the 18-yard area. In fact, if a key pass, which is a pass that leads to a shot, not so not always an assist, but a pass that leads to a shot, if a key pass comes from that zone 14, which is right in front of the 18-yard uh, box or from inside the 18-yard box, the chances of it actually leading to a goal go, go way up by like 20, 30% or something like that. So the fact that the fire invited Orlando City into that zone is just terrible on a number of levels. Now we said Chihos misses the initial tackle, drops his arms, looks dejected, just looks up at the sky like, oh, I can't believe I did that. But he needs to be getting back and recovering. Because of that, he cannot make the recovery run back to the middle of the box. And that's what you should do. If you're a defender and you get beat like that, and the player, in this case, Ojeda, is not driving towards the goal. He's driving forward, but not necessarily towards the goal. You need to recover back towards the goal, get into that central position. But instead, he just stands there and looks dejected. That leaves a Seves to either Mark Smith on the wing or Ojeda coming up the middle. So he makes the only choice he ha he can clog up the middle to prevent to prevent the pass or shot going to inside, which leaves Smith to receive it open wide. And good on Ojeda on recognizing the breakdown in the defense and playing out wide. Then good on Facundo Torres for finding the space between Carlos Turan, who's ball watching, uh, Chihos, who is not recovering, and Suke, who's kind of left stranded on the back post, marking two men uh, because... Ferbers, Fabian Herbers, my, shall I call it affectionate pet name for him, Ferbers, um, is not tracking back. He's like marking space in the middle of the 18-yard box. Go back and watch the replay. He's he's guarding the grass 
in that area. That grass has no ch no chance of scoring. But that means that Suke can't leave his man to rotate over and help Tehran Mark Torres. And as a result, Facundo Torres, one of the shorter men on the pitch, scores off of a header. But this is terrible defense from a team that was originally built on defense. Now we move on to the next goal, Facundo Torres, 55th minute from the spot, penalty kick. And a lot of people were arguing that Fabian Herbers, who got called, I think rightfully so, for the handball, it shouldn't have been a handball. They're saying that his, his arm was against the body, um, the elbow was tucked in, he wasn't making himself bigger, and it was ball to hand, he had no time to react. And those are all valid arguments, but I think they don't carry a lot of weight in this situation. Uh, because in this case... If you look at one of the camera angles, you can see Ferbers leaves the chicken wing out there. He's not actually pulling his arms in. He's just taking an extended arm and bringing his fist to his chest and turning. So his elbow is still out there. And again, you can argue that it's ball to hand, but because this is such an obvious deflection off of his arm, it and this isn't part of the rule book, but I think it did come into play here with the referee. Um, and you can say what you want about this referee. He had a terrible game. Anytime you see him out there, you know you're in for some odd head-scratching calls, to say the least. But it was such an obvious misdirection of the ball. It was such an obvious arm out. And it, it take away a clear scoring chance from Orlando. Again, that's not part of the law. But it definitely is in the referee's head. It definitely is in the head of every Orlando player, coach, and fan in that stadium who erupted after that. And so I think the call is a, is a good call. At the very least, it wasn't a bad call. They did go to VAR to check it, not enough to overturn on VAR. So in this case, we're going to have to live with it, Fire fans, to say the least. But I think it was a, a correct call, if not an appropriate call. Now, Shakiri gets one back in the 66th minute. Oh, wait, by the way, about that Facundo Torres PK, uh, came off of a set piece. It was a corner kick that comes in. The Fire can't clear it. It goes um, to, I forget the Orlando City player's name, who's at the edge of the 18 box who either one touches the shot or settles and shoots, and it goes right into to Herbers' elbow. Again, Herbers marking grass and has to run out to go find his man with his elbow up. Terrible, terrible performance today by Fabian Herbers, who, by the way, also missed a sitter and picked up, I think, a yellow card on top of it. That I might, that'll have to check. But poor, poor game for Herbers, who scored two goals in two games coming into it. So we knew that run of form was going to come to a, a quick end. Now, Chicago does pull one back. Shakiri gets his penalty in the 66th. And lucky for him that he's taken the PKs because not three minutes before, Gutierrez lays a ball off for him about eight yards just to the right of the keeper. There is no one marking him. And Shakiri, again, does he think he's in Soldier Field having field goal tryouts for the Bears? Because he skies it from like eight yards out. I don't know what he was thinking. Now, if you want to defend Shakiri, the ball maybe takes a little bit of a hop up, but he his form was so bad, it went from maybe being a high save for the keeper to being the keeper doesn't have to make a move because the ball was going nowhere but into the 25th row of the stadium. So terrible for Shakiri. He's lucky he gets the PK back, places it in the exact right spot with power. I mean, Gallese is an excellent PK stopper. Guesses right on this one, or maybe he didn't guess. Maybe he knows where Shakiri's going. But Shakiri puts it just out of his reach in the perfect spot with the perfect pace. And it's 2-1 to one in the 66th. There's a lot of game time. And the Fire just put in a few subs about five minutes before this. So they've got some momentum. They've got some fresh legs. 
But guess what? Possession was about even, slightly favoring Orlando for the next five minutes. And then Orlando kind of went into a bit of a defensive shell for a bit. So the fire are unable to do anything with what little offensive momentum they actually generated. And then they give up a late one, shocking, in the 75th minute to Ramiro Enrique. Now this caused a lot of people to be upset because a lot of people thought this was offside on Ramiro Enrique. So during the buildup, Orlando City brings the ball to about the halfway line. They play the ball into the channels. Enrique is running towards the ball, but he was already in an offside position. That is not disputed. I agree 100%. Enrique is in an offside position when the ball is played, I don't want to say to him and muddy the waters even further, but the ball is played to where he is making his run. He knows he's in an offside position. And in fact, Angulo is behind him yelling, like, you're offside, you're offside, leave it, leave it, leave it. So Enrique breaks off his run into the corner to get the ball and instead makes a run into the 18-yard box at the corner of the 18-yard box. So Angulo then runs, gets the ball up. He was in an onside position when the ball was played, so there's no issue with him playing the ball. He plays it back to Enrique, who is now onside, and Enrique puts a low hard shot in the corner just off the fingertips of Chris Brady, and that makes it 3-1. Now, a lot of people thought this was offside. Let me read you the rule book from uh, IFAB, the international rule book, or the laws of the game here, if you want to call it that, um, about offside. I'm not, and I don't want to say anything more than that to set it up. This is the rule. It is not an offense to be in an offside position. Okay, that's fine. So Enrique is in an offside position. No problem with that. Now, the second part of, there, there's more to that, but it's not applicable. Now, the second part of the rule says a player is in an offside position at the moment the ball is played or touched by a teammate is only penalized on becoming involved in active play by now here's here's what Enrique would have had to do in order to trigger offside he would have had to interfere with play by playing or touching a ball the ball which he didn't do he would have to interfere with an opponent by preventing the opponent from playing or being able to play the ball or obstructing their vision clearly obstructing the vision, excuse me, challenging an opponent or attempting to play a ball, which is close when this action impacts on an opponent or making an obvious action with imp, which impacts on the ability of an opponent to play the ball. He didn't do any of that. He didn't affect the Chicago fire defense at all. Matter of fact, Chicago fire defense was nowhere to be seen, which probably hurt their chances of getting this overturned on VAR because nobody actually ran to the ball or ran to Enrique. Or he can be penalized by becoming involved in an active play by gaining an advantage by playing the ball or interfering with an opponent when it has rebounded or been deflected off the goalpost, crossbar, referee, or opponent, or been deliberately saved by any opponent. So nothing in the offside rule applies to the situation that occurred. Therefore, no offense occurred. Play stands as called good goal to Orlando City. So I, I get why you're upset, Chicago Fire fans, but I think your anger is more directed at how terrible the Fire played this game and we're just looking for outlets that aren't our the team that we're supporting. But in this case, the Fire got everything wrong on defense and the referee and VAR got everything right by the laws of the game. Now, let's take a, a quick look at the statistics. I want to talk a little bit about some coaching things, and then we'll get into the second half of our show with the focus on the USMNT. Now, the statistics here, the fire had 
it was about even possession, about 50-50 with Orlando. And all these stats are coming from MLSsoccer.com. Eight shots, four on goal, which usually means the Fire are going to score one or two of them. Um, PK accepting. The Fire had 410 passes at an 87.3% passing accuracy. Uh, so, again, when you start to see a number that high, you see a lot of passes in the defensive third. And we saw that. And the Fire were actually trying to slow the game down in spurts. So, again, I think that shows that they were trying to prevent Orlando City's counterattacking, um, but then just weren't able to either do that with that third goal or weren't able to actually play regular defense, I'll call it, on that first goal. So a lot of um, a lot of defensive half passing there. Only three corners. So they were not getting into the corners. You had Suquet, Aceves, and or Suquet, Aceves, and Navarro coming in, and you still couldn't get those guys down into the corners to play crosses in or win corner kicks. So again, that we I don't know what the offensive game plan was. I don't think I think it was just maybe Gutierrez and Shaq can do something. One offside. They did win 45 duels. So the defense in that sense was winning their duels in, in and most of that I'd say would occur in the middle third of the field, or at least winning their duels um, buckling down in some last gasp defending. But at the same time, it's not like or Orlando was really challenging in those areas, trying to counterattack or trying to build through possession. Only seven, one tackles come to think of it though. Seven for Orlando. So there's your perspective. Fire had no offense and yet both teams still had the same number of tackles, defensive plays, right? Uh, six saves by Brady, 18 clearances by the defense, 13 fouls, two yellows, and a red. And that red, again, I'm going to segue into now my coaching criticism here. Arnaud Suquet gets a, a yellow card in the 20th minute. I think it's a terrible call. I don't think it was a deserved yellow card. Was it a hard foul? Absolutely. I don't think it was a deserved yellow card, but the ref called it in the 20th minute. So Klopas makes a bunch of subs in the 60 in between like the 60th and 70th minute and does not sub out Suke. He puts in Navarro, it does not sub out Suke. So he's not protecting his player in that instance. So I don't know what Klopas was thinking in that. Honestly, I think there's some issue going on between Klopas and Suke because you just see Suke completely disengaged throughout his warmups throughout his game, throughout his playing. Like, he is disengaged. Like, he might play and make his runs and work with his teammate and play his defense, but all the body language, like, all of his off-the-ball stuff, his facial expressions, he looks like an employee who's about to quit and, and want to go someplace else or just straight-up retire. So I, I believe there's something going on between him and Klopas, and it does kind of follow the trend of Klopas losing locker rooms relatively quickly into his coaching tenure. Looking at the expected goals, a little bit of an advanced stat here. The Fire were expected to score 2.2 goals. So, and, and that was off of eight shots, four of which were on target. So once again, let's take the PK out of it, because depending on the model, a PK is given between 0.85 and 0.95 uh, XG. So you take away about one, the Fire, again, down to, you know, about 1.4 goals in this one. And they only had one other quality opportunity. Ferber's is missed shot in the 50th minute. That one was, I, I want to say, like a 40% chance or some, some very high percent chance like that to go in. And he just does not put the power on it and allows it to be cleared off the line. Other than that shot, no shot had a percent chance of going in greater than 22%. And that was Shaq's flub just before the PK. So take the shooter into account on that one. 
So again, we had a terrible defensive performance, terrible offensive performance, terrible coaching performance, and the Fire, I think now, have only beat one team above the playoff line. I'll have to check that. That's what I was reading on Twitter. The Fire, despite winning two road games, but those were non-conference opponents, so they are still sitting well outside the playoff line in the Eastern Conference. Now, with that, we are going to cut to our featured guest, John Donovan. On the YouTube side, you'll just hear a short break because John Donovan is a podcast-only feature, so make sure you go follow along on Spotify to hear all of John's hot takes about the Chicago Fire, and it's coming from a guy who played pro soccer in Venezuela not too long ago, so you're going to want to, you're going to enjoy his opinions. So, John, take it away. Nick, John Donovan here talking about the MLS and the Chicago Fire. Nick, I can't get upset with that our road trips and they come back with two wins and one loss, but this final loss, I got a bitter taste in my mouth. I'm starting to see the old Klopas come back. It, uh, the, the lineup just didn't make sense against a team like Orlando. Perea's teams are always fast. They always have, he's a smart coach. He always puts somebody up against a slower player. And in this, in this game that he, uh, that they played this past uh, Saturday evening, he put Suquet or Suquet's position is right uh, defense, and he had this guy Anujo against him, and he is lightning fast. And I, Suquet just couldn't stay with this guy. I mean, it happened. It's happened in the past, and a smart coach would have made a change on the uh, on the play on the assignment, substitute somebody in, but get somebody with speed against Anujo. He burned him at the end of the game with a beautiful pass. Um, the guy was just dynamite. So what, um, you know, I, I literally was a little bit stunned again at this game. Klopas keeps putting Shakiri in the middle, and it just, it stagnates the team. I've watched him, I watched the game twice, and I tried to focus on Shakiri, and he doesn't come back to play defense like a normal center midfielder would do. That center midfielder spot, I've said it time and time again, that's the quarterback of the squad. He's got to be a defensive guy. He's got to be an offensive guy at the top of the uh, sort of the penalty area. He kicks it out to guys that are streaking down. Gutierrez does a marvelous job as it. Shakiri is not that guy, and the fire keeps pressing him and pressing him. If you look at Shakiri play in Switzerland, he was a wing. He had an assist in this uh this past international play, but he does, he's not a center midfielder. And when he plays that position, it just stagnates up the middle. You've got those defenders have to have that first pass. They look up and they look for that uh, center midfielder that should be about 10 yards away from him. Open. Shakiri lags back and plays up even with Kamara. And it just, just doesn't work. I mean, the best squad that Klopas could have on the floor would be um, Gutierrez in the middle. If you want to play Shakiri, put him out to the left side. Get him out there. We don't have anybody since Mueller's been hurt. Puts uh, Selassie on the right. Gutierrez is center mid. And Kutsias, the I would love to see him give the, the young Greek player a chance. He's played like three games out of position, and he's got two goals. You know, I know that they're, they're playing this uh, Kamara for the uh, the Landon Donovan record, but come on, guys. At the, the 63rd minute, he was walking. And finally, they put in Casper, who 
I, I looked at it when in overtime, Casper did nothing, absolutely nothing. It, uh, it was a wasted spot, especially with a man down. Now, Suquet kept getting outrun by Andulo, and he he wasted a, a red card on the game. So they've got to go in next week against Nashville, which is a lightning quick team. And who is going to play right win, or right defense? I have no idea who they're going to put out there. It's going to be quite interesting. But uh, the kid Shackelford that uh, played for Toronto last year is lightning quick. If he's up against whoever they put out and he doesn't have speed, it is going to be one long game. Now, um, in the in the game itself, Klopas started Tehran. And now Tehran has not played for three weeks. He hurt his knee. I'm a big-time Tehran fan, but he didn't. He wasn't ready to play this game. He would get the ball, and he would just whiff on the passes. He obviously had issues. They forced him into that play. I don't get it because Olmsberg is a good player, and he's smart. He's a rough guy. He would be a great substitute for Tehran. In fact, he beat out Tehran last year, or Tehran was hurt, and Tehran couldn't get him off the floor. So it's just Klopas and his substituting. He took Avesis out um, about the 70th minute of the game, and he put on Mr. Yellow Card, Miguel Navarro, and it took about five minutes for him to make a stupid yellow card play. Between him and Navarro, I just, uh, and Federico Navarro, I just don't get these guys. You know, when you do the same thing over and over and get the cards, you'd think there'd be a little mind change in your game. Well, it's not with Miguel Navarro. It it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, the team right now is two full games. I think they're nine points out of first place or out of making it into the playoffs. So guys, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I have some severe suspicions that they're not going to make the playoffs this year. In a league that allows nine teams into the playoffs, the Fire have successfully not made the playoffs in all of Heinz' playoff years. Uh, the only good thing I can see about the signing of this 32-year-old DP with two goals in 10 years is that it's a short-term DP spot. So if they can get rid of Shakiri next year, and I think Torres is finished with his contract. He just hasn't lived up. He had a good game the previous game, but yesterday's game he was not. Any new GM could possibly have three DP placements, which would hopefully help the team. I don't want them to see see them go sign some Greek coach. I really want them to get somebody from LAX, get Curtin from Philadelphia, do something with an American-trained MLS successful coach slash GM and uh, start out next year clean. I mean, we we are... The fire are just very, very disappointing. I was so happy when Joe Bonsueto, with all his loot, bought the team, but he just named the wrong guy. And we, you think of it, we've gone through, if you name Klopas right now, we've gone through four coaches in four years. Um, it just doesn't get it. Ezra was bad. Klopas is terrible. I mean, we just are not there, and we're making poor decisions. The, the funny thing is there is talent on this team, to compete in this league, but the management just doesn't kick it. So I hope everything's going well with you, Nick. Uh, Mike, I hope you're listening. Uh, Toronto made a big move getting rid of Bradley. I, it's kind of sad that 
see a guy that had so much talent, but he just couldn't control the big, the big timers. So have a good day. I'm looking forward to next week. Bye. John, I want to thank you for your insight, for contributing every single week. And we, of course, want to thank our sponsor, Skira Icelandic Spring Water, for John's featured segment, Icelandic for Clear. Skira water comes from a spring in a government-protected nature preserve in Iceland with naturally low mineral content. This isn't your average water. Clearly, pun intended, it's one of the best. And again, thanks to John, and thanks to Skira Icelandic Spring Water. Couple other quick notable, a uh, couple other notable matches quickly before we transition into the USMNT. I told you in the preview episode, watch out for that Cincinnati and New England game, and it did not disappoint. A two-two draw between the top two teams in the East with a little controversy there as well. Uh, so that one, obviously, great matchup for the weekend. I told you, let's see how TFC reacts to Bob Bradley being fired. Well, they reacted poorly and lose one nothing at home to RSL. And then the other matchup I kept an eye on was San Jose versus the LA Galaxy, the Cali Classico, a rivalry game that can maybe help San Jose cement themselves as a playoff team and maybe give the Galaxy a little bit of a push forward, especially after the drama with the front office, uh, the release of, of their one of their center backs, ends up being a 2-2 draw. So a little bit of goal-scoring excitement in that match out west. But a couple other scores that really took me by surprise, Kansas City after falling on their face to Chicago and could barely generate that final pass, that key pass, ends up with a 3-0 victory over, uh, I don't want to call him a hot Vancouver, but over a, an improving Vancouver side, 3-0. Polito gets back on the score sheet, a great sign for Kansas City fans. And then Minnesota coming out of nowhere with a 4-1 thrashing of Portland. Reynoso is back, two goals in this game. And then Diego Chira with an own goal, which you don't, hardly ever see that man is such a smart player and it always gets in good positions for him to be allowing own goals not characteristic of portland portland might have to start to blow things up a little bit on that roster but minnesota is back watch out for them now gold cup usmnt this is been such a fun tournament to watch just purely for the goal scoring no, the quality of competition isn't there. I will give you that. Playing a lot of these Caribbean nations and some of the Central American nations. And the U.S. hasn't uh, really been tested. They kind of came out a little flat. Jamaica, Jamaica took it to them. I think people forget that Jamaica has a couple of Premier League, former Premier League players, English Championship, USL quality guy, USL Championship guys, not MLS quality guys here. So Jamaica is a respectable team in an individual sense, but they've always had a difficult time putting that all together at the international level. So U.S. gives up the first goal to Jamaica, comes back in the second half, gets the draw. So now they have to win big in their next two games so that they can be the top team in the group and advance uh, on goal differential, assuming Jamaica wins their next two games as well. And that's exactly what the USA did. In fact, Jesus Ferrer with two hat tricks. He is the only USMNT player with back-to-back hat tricks and is now joined Landon Donovan as the only USMNT player with three hat tricks in sanctioned FIFA MLS games. Um, so it's a huge record by Jesus Ferreira. Now let's 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 stick with Ferreira here for a little bit. A lot of hate and a lot of love. No one's really in the middle with Jesus Ferreira. And the way I see it, if you're glass half full, if you're if you're all aboard the Ferreira hype train, nope, not the Ricardo Pepe one. If you're on board with Ferreira here, the glass half full approach, he has scored a lot of goals in international competition against CONCACAF opponents. The team is creating a lot of opportunities for their number nine, which we hadn't seen 
a lot of leading up to, or I should say, leading up to and during the last World Cup. So they're creating for the number nine, and he's finishing them. No other American striker is putting up this kind of quick numbers at such a young age. But if you're a pessimist, if you're a USMNT hater, if you like being miserable watching your national team, then you're going to say, yeah, well, of his 14 international goals, Ferreira scored 12 of them against Caribbean nations. So terrible competition. Also, he's not going to get any better because he's playing in MLS, for whatever that argument's worth, not going to go down that rabbit hole. But also... The U.S. doesn't have any games against good international competition until October where they're playing friendlies against Germany and Ghana, but here in the United States, not abroad, and then World Cup qualifying. So you're going to get home games against Germany and Ghana, and who knows what kind of squads they're going to bring, if they're going to use these as qualifying tune-ups with their full squad or, or look to rotate some younger players in. And then you've just got World Cup qualifying, and look at that. You're back to playing... Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, and then, yeah, Canada, Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama, right? So not a lot of opportunities for Ferreira and the USMNT to really ramp up things prior to World Cup qualifying. At least the good news is they automatically qualify as one of the host nations. Getting back to the Gold Cup, though, just as a reminder, the Gold Cup is the CONCACAF. It is the regional tournament that team that the top ranked teams in CONCACAF get invited to. This isn't Nations League, which is a newer tournament uh, where every nation in CONCACAF will participate in some way or other. The smaller Caribbean teams will be ha- have their own Nations League plan and moving, you know, that sort of thing. Um, actually, no, they have, they've got a Gold Cup plan and then a Nations League. They all have their own individual groups that they advance and uh, there's promotion and relegation within the Nations League group. So this is Gold Cup. This is the the more exclusive, if you will, of the two tournaments. And in this edition, we've got 15 teams from CONCACAF and a guest in Qatar, or Qatar, however you want to pronounce it. Um, as you, If you remember, Qatar was also invited to participate in the Gold Cup previous to uh, the World Cup, so that they and the CONCACAF opponents could get some good international competition, or at least better international competition. Now, what are we looking at as far as the standings here? Two groups, A and B, have already finished their three group games, and then Group C and D still have games to play on the 4th of July, actually. It's going to be a lot of fun, lighting off fireworks, grilling, and watching some international soccer. So the USA and Jamaica have advanced out of Group A, 1 and 2, over Trinidad and Tobago and St. Kitts and Nevis. It's kind of expected. Mexico and Qatar advance out of Group B over Honduras and Haiti. That, I'll say, is kind of expected. I would expect Mexico to win that group or at worst come in second behind Qatar. Um, I think there was a goal differential on that one that allowed Qatar through. Now group C and D, it looks like at this point before the final game is played, Panama will advance and Martinique should advance with a result versus Costa Rica. But if Costa Rica ends up beating Martinique, which is not a guarantee, then Costa Rica would advance, should advance, I'll say, with a win over Martinique. We'll see about goal differential and if Panama um, ends up drawing or not. Now, in Group D, this is going to be the exciting final day because Canada is in third place. They are, you could call them the favorite to win that group, and I would have said they're the favorite to win that group coming in, but they had two draws in their first two games against number one and number two now, Guadalupe and Guatemala. So Canada is playing last place Cuba. And they need to win to advance. A draw, they will not advance. If they win, they better do it by a good goal differential. Because if Guadalupe and Guatemala draw, then 
or I'm sorry, if Guadalupe or Guatemala win, then that's first second place spot is going to be decided on goal differential. And if Canada, um, or I should say if Guadalupe and Guatemala draw and Canada wins, then they're all sitting on five points and goal differential will come into play. So Canada needs a big win. And what's going to be exciting is Guadalupe and Guatemala can't just sit back and assume a point will get them through on goal differential. They got to play to win because they're not going to leave their fate in Canada's hands or feet as it was a soccer tournament. I've also been very impressed with Jordi Mihailovic and Gianluca Busio during this run so far. I want to see more out of Cade Cowell, but he's definitely still at that. I've got potential to be a, a, a great player um, in these type of tournaments, but I love Mihailovic two assists and two goals in three games with the U S Busio two assists and a goal in these three games with the United States. They are looking to kind of really push to challenge to be maybe the fifth midfielder for this full U.S. squad. You got to assume your starters are going to be MMA, right? McKenney, Musa, and Adams. You have De La Torre uh, pushing into that role. Um, and I'm, I'm escaping some of the other names right now who we saw play in the Nations League game matches. Um, but you all, but Mihailovic could be pushing into that midfield role with the way he has been playing. Busio potentially playing himself into a reserve spot. I don't think he is able to, to jump any of those guys, and I think he's still behind Mihailovic on whatever USMNT depth chart you're looking at. But still, they they look like these guys are really taking advantage of their opportunity. And again, Matt Turner playing really well. Let's one game in, one goal in and three games. Um, albeit he hasn't had to do a lot during some of these matches, but that's big part of being a goalie is 20 minutes of nothing. And then boom, you have to have everything tuned in for that one shot that comes your way. So Matt Turner, again, continuing uh, to show why he's the U S number one with that. We're going to wrap up tonight's episode again, have a happy and safe 4th of July independence day holiday. Make sure you share the show on Spotify with all of your family and friends that you're hanging out with. Heck, put it on in the background where you're lighting off the fireworks. You probably couldn't hear it anyway, but enjoy the show, enjoy the holiday, like, and subscribe, find us on social at Glasshouse Soccer. And as always, let's go fire. <laughs> <laughs>